0: Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire, and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often-overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Sheesh. Hey, Hey everyone. Today, we have the one and only Sheridan Claiborne, co-founder of LendTable, a company that provides cash advances so employees can take advantage of their employer benefits and generally one of the most interesting humans I've met. So welcome to the show, Sheridan.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Also, I somehow lost the window where you were on. Oh, now find it again. Okay, I can see your face. Wonderful. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Well, you have one of the uh, most interesting backstories of any founder I've heard. So maybe we can start there.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so I think uh, you know my founding story uh, kind of starts um, come from like a family of entrepreneurs. Um, particularly, my dad. I think uh, you know a bit of an interesting caveat is my dad entrepreneur's entire life never necessarily was successful. I saw him start and fail and start again, many, many tens of companies. Uh, my mom was always kind of the co-founder on these businesses, largely begrudgingly. It was kind of like, my dad would start some new company. He wouldn't have a job. They need to figure out some way to make money. My mom was like, oh my God, you gotta just get a job. And my dad's like, ah. So now she's like, okay, now I need you to go help out with this. So my mom's an absolute trooper and my dad is just like a diehard entrepreneur. Um, but yeah, so I got a lot of the inspiration from kind of uh, founding companies from them. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've been doing kind of like these side projects and like oddball ways to kind of make money since I was a little kid. Um, The first like serious company I started was when I was 15. So when I was 15, I had graduated from high school and gotten into Northwestern. um, But parents were very broke at this point in time. One of their companies had kind of just failed. Um, So I needed to figure out a way to kind of help my parents pay for the mortgage and then help take care of my younger siblings. Um, What I ended up doing is sneakers, particularly Yeezys and Jordans were really popular at the time. Uh, for those of you who might not know, a pair of Jordans can go in the retail market for 200 bucks. That's like when it's sold from Nike um, or, you know, a pair of Yeezys when it's sold from Adidas can sell for 200, 220 bucks and immediately go in the aftermarket for four, 500, 600, 700. Um, reason for it is these companies are trying to arbitrarily constrain supply to build up demand, to build up hype. Um, but as you guys can probably tell, there's a clear arbitrage there. Um, If you can just acquire the shoes, you can make 100, 200, 300 percent return. But the hard part is how do you actually get 100 pairs of shoes out of the thousand that exist when a million people are trying to buy it? Um, The way that you do it is you essentially try to like DDoS the site. So you send as many orders as you possibly can. A bunch of complexity there. You need to have unique information. You need unique credit card, unique phone number, unique email, uh, unique shipping address. Um, Yeah, so essentially built out a lot of the, uh, you know, bots and tooling and infrastructure um, to manage the process of trying to buy as much of this inventory as possible. Um, Scaled it up to like 20 million in revenue by the time I was 18. So I've bought a whole lot of sneakers and Kylie Jenner lip kits and tickets and all this stuff kind of in my life. from that, I kinda made my first million bucks when I was 17. Literally no idea what to do with it. Um, some friends were like, you should do banking. That's how like rich people go to make more money. I'm like, all right, sounds interesting. Uh, so when I was 17, I was a quant trader at JP Morgan. When I was 18, um, I worked on Goldman's Special Situations Group, which did growth stage, private equity, and venture capital, and FinTech investing. Um, thought finance was super awesome, but thought that it wasn't really helping any of the people I knew in my community my parents my grandparents no one in my family had ever used any of goldman's services that kind of sucked because i felt like there's a lot of ways they can make money um so after that point i really just kind of took my hand at building fintech companies um first one i built was called ulti Uh, stood for alternative investments. We essentially were like a betterment for private equity or making it easier for people to invest in private equity funds. They were not accredited. Uh, Preceding that, I was building a company called Credit Rent Boost. We were helping people submit their rental payments so that they could boost their credit. The idea is that, you know, when you pay off your credit card on time, it goes to boost your credit. Your rent is a significantly larger share of the payments you make but it doesn't affect your credit score at all, unless you go to a place like Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian, um, and no one does that. No one knows how to do it. Um, different reasons, you know, kind of stopped working on those companies or kind of, you know, uh, you know, thought about different things. Um, the most recent company I was running to lend Table was a company called Slate Tattoo. We were building a marketplace for tattoo artists and people looking to get tattoos. For those of you who might know, like Squire or Booksy, similar service there, I could talk for, Many hours about the tattoo industry and why I think it's an awesome fucking industry that people need to get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, with that company and the year we are running it, we help people get about like 20,000 tattoos. So I know a whole lot about tattoos, even though as someone who only has one tattoo. Um, but yeah, so you know, outside of that, I kind of like I dropped out of Northwestern when I was 18. Uh, went to come work at... Um, sorry, I dropped out of Northwestern at 18, went to come work at Dropbox as a machine learning product manager when I was 19, and then quit my first full-time job in three months to start LendTable. And that's kind of the abridged, but also long version of my backstory. So many things in there. Okay. few well, questions. I've also done so, a bunch of other startups in between there that I kind of didn't
0: mention. It's all just like a bunch of bullshit. So You keep yourself busy. Well, yes. how did you graduate high school in, at 15. I mean, it's just, that's not normal. So I guess, was it something where you were just getting really bored and your parents were like, hey, why is he in this like grade when he's clearly not getting anything? Yeah, out of it? Yeah.
1: yeah, so I was a, um, it was almost entirely born out of competition. Um, so I actually, uh, as a kid, I, I struggled a lot actually at school. Um, I almost got held back in third grade. I really struggled to kind of read and write. I had a pretty bad speech impediment where I couldn't say, kind of sounds like I have an accent. The reason being is I can't say like woad or wabbit or quar, uh, my R's sound funny. Um, but yeah, the the one reason I kind of excelled at school is because, uh, there was a couple people, I remember when I was younger, where the teacher just thought they were like fundamentally smarter than me. And that drove me to a point of the closest you can be to insane as a fourth grader is uh, that's what I was. I would just like relentlessly teach books to be like, fuck this kid, fuck this teacher. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm gonna figure it out. Um, but yeah, I mean, so from that kind of relentless, just like competition, I ended up, uh in my fifth grade i took uh, pre-algebra algebra and then over the summer i taught myself algebra two trig geometry and pre-calculus and got into a whole bunch of fights with the teachers at the uh, middle school and high school because they're like you can't skip these grades and i'm like what's the point of me taking these classes if i've already learned the material like can you just let me take the final um so that's what i did i think when i came into sixth grade in a week, I took the final for pre algebra, algebra, geometry, algebra two trig, and pre-calculus. I think I got like near a hundred percent on all four of those tests, on, on four out of the five. On pre-calc, I didn't do that well. So
0: I ended up uh, just taking the pre-calc test in a pre-calc class in sixth grade. That's crazy. Yeah. And then when you were um, when you were starting the first company with the sneakers, how many times did you get either credit cards blocked or kicked off sites? I'm sure it was a learning experience. Oh, I have so many fun this I mean, the business is still ongoing. So um, I I can
1: talk about the success and failure of all these companies. But this company actually still exists. Um, Yeah. So the biggest problem we had to start was credit cards. Um, So you need to have a unique credit card number for every single one of these purchases um my dad can't open a credit card at the time we did it my dad had such a bad credit score that he literally couldn't open a credit card and i was 15 so i couldn't open a credit card um so the initial solution was like let's just get a bunch of my friends to open up debit cards we could do about 20 you know 20 uh cards is what we had access to and then even those uh, some of those cards started getting blocked. So the idea I had is like, okay, I, I can just say I'm a business with 100,000 employees. I'm going to Chase Bank. They'll just give me 100,000 credit cards. So I, I talked to a couple bank tellers there. They're like, yo, you've got like a couple grand in your bank account. Like, I'm not going to give you 100,000 cards. I'm like, that's bullshit. They're free to make. Like, just give me as many cards as you want. And like, we're not going to do that. Um, so did a bunch of that. That didn't work. Um, ended up through a very weird, random kind of set of events, um, raising a quarter million dollars as a debt equity deal to invest in more sneakers where they would retain like 50% of the profit from it. Um, And the solution that I came up with is I told this guy, all right, I need your investment to be entirely in cash. No joke. I needed a bag of $250,000 in cash. Reason being is uh, for those of you, if um, have, have you guys have bought kind of like American Express gift cards before, those little kind of gold things you can get at a CVS. Um, so I tried to buy it online. They blocked me from doing it because they're like, that sounds like uh, not fraud. Well, yes, that sounds like fraud. That sounds like money laundering. We're not gonna do that. Um, but if you go to a CVS and a Walgreens, they sell those. Here's the thing though, because of money laundering and fraud, they also rate limit the amount of those gift cards you can buy in a month to two. So I was like, I'm sure a lot of these places don't actually know how that works. They don't know about that rule. Um, If we just go with cash, they're not gonna block our card from acquiring these things and we can just buy them all in cash. So I literally showed up when I was 15 years old when I got my first VC check to a CVS with a quarter million dollars in a brown Chanel bag. And I bought as many American Express gift cards as I can with the maximum allowable limit of $500. And the funniest part about this story, and there's a lesson in this, So ended up buying, ended up uh, getting 500 American Express gift cards with $500 a piece. Super annoying process of like tearing out all the packages, writing down the card numbers, yada, yada. But like it was fine. It worked. Did our first release. We acquired about, I think it was like $50,000 worth of inventory. And these were the Yeezy Beluga 350 V2s first drop. Immediate resale price was going for about – it was like 100% premium, which was crazy. I was like, this is more money than I've ever made in my life collectively. Like this is more money than my parents make in a year. This is fucking wild. Uh, problem was uh, they banned American Express gift cards the next week. So oh, now wow. I have thousand dollars in American Express gift cards. And you might be thinking to yourself, okay, it's cash. It's not that hard to get off. You cannot transact with them. I mean, you can't just like go to American Express and be like, hey, give me the money back. They don't do that. You can't go to a bank and say like, hey, I want to deposit this money. You can't do that. You can't even open up your own Square store or your own PayPal store and charge yourself, take the 3% fee because they'll block you from money laundering. So now I was like, holy shit, <laughs> I've made 50 grand, but I have $200,000 in credit cards that I literally cannot get the money off of. What the fuck do I do? if I fuck this up and somehow can't do this, like I am fully bankrupt. Like this is significantly more money than the sum
0: total of all the money that I have. So I've had so many problems with credit cards in my life. Did they block the cards because of you? Do you think it, do you think it had anything to do with you buying up a lot of the inventory?
1: There's, there's no way that we were a large enough player at the time for them to have bought because of us. It was because, because of people like me, for sure, like the sum total of people. It was also probably just like gift card fraud in general would be my guess.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. How did yeah. you convince somebody to give you 250K in cash as a 15-year-old?
1: The, the returns were guaranteed. To me, it was just like, look, this is such an obvious market. Like just as X and Goat were kind of starting. Um, I actually, I, a huge to me it seems so obvious i mean look i'm incredibly grateful for the first investor we had come on like to me it's like such a no brainer like i've i have a buddy of mine who's starting like a uh csgo marketplace the kid's like 13 14 and i invested like 100k of my own money cuz i'm like yeah this is so obvious like you're the perfect person to do this like you're a fucking killer these csgo marketplaces are going crazy like it just I don't know, made a lot of sense um yeah i mean it was definitely what is CSGO? A- csgo counter-strike global offensive so you can buy and sell these like skins on guns even more bullshit than sneakers like this doesn't even have a physical representation nor do the skins on the guns give you any benefit in game it's straight up just cosmetic
0: and is it just um, because people want to show off and they want to have the fancy exclusive ones or whatever exclusive. look good it, to their friends it's
1: the same reason for why you'd have clothing like why do you care about having some fancy chanel bag Sure, you can make some case on quality, but like it's largely just like that kind of a you know cultural
0: signaling. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Not an area I know a lot about. Yeah. Well, so I want to get into a little bit of how you kind of came to Lend Table. So definitely, you know, very different than selling shoes. <laughs> what is a you know, what is the general premise and how did you come to this kind of realization that there's a huge need here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. I feel like all of the kind of experiences I've had
1: kind of, you know, building companies has kind of led up to this. And to some degree, I would actually say it's very similar to selling shoes. Um, the whole kind of idea behind what we were doing with sneakers is just like, I am not a sneakerhead. A lot of people, when they hear about my business, I've owned hundreds of thousands of Yeezys in my life and I don't wear any of them. I I don't care, I'm not into sneakers, I simply just see it as like an inefficient market where we can bring some efficiency to it. Um, And quite frankly, uh, so the way that I kind of came about and my co-founder Mitchell and I, the way we kind of thought about this business, um, for me, the initial idea started, so I was working at Dropbox, that was kind of after I dropped out of school, um, 19, setting up my 401k match um, and Dropbox offered this really good match of $6,000. For those of you listening who might not know what a 401k match is, it's a relatively simple idea. You put in $6,000 into an account and your employer matches it. You get an additional $6,000. There's a bunch of reasons why employers offer it, but the simplest way to think about it is, it's just something they kind of have to offer just in the same way that they have to pay you money. You're not going to work there if they don't pay you money. You're not going to work there if they don't offer you health care. You're not going to work there if they don't offer you a match. Um, yeah. And the way you know, that I initially kind of thought about the idea was just like a couple of my friends who had also just started that year, um, weren't using their 401k match. And I'm like, well, that's stupid. Like they're giving you $6,000 for free. Why wouldn't you use it? And they had all these kind of different rationales of, oh, you know, I I don't really get it. I don't know if I want to use it right now. I've got some expenses. Like I just moved in. Like I'm a little liquidity constrained. Um, And the initial inception of the idea was just like, all right, like what if I just like buy it from you? Um, There was no sophistication at all. It was just like, you have no money in your 401k right now. What if you just like give me your fidelity username and password? I'll pay you 500 bucks. And then I'll just like contribute for you. Like it's not gonna cost you anything. You're already not using the match. There's kind of no downside. Um, and broadly the way we kind of, you know really started thinking about this as a you know, a real big business instead of just being some random kind of hack on the side is I met Mitchell, uh, Mitch is my co-founder and he spent his entire life in FinTech, entire life kind of thinking about the space. Um, and we were kind of just like jamming back and forth about, you know, he was working at a FinTech company at the time. Um, the kind of question we were kind of posing to ourselves was like, we really wanted to like build some lasting company and financial services and help people. What would we do? And it's like, well, the first thing, pay off any high interest credit card debt. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're dealing with a payday loan or credit card debt, pay that off. The second thing, make sure you have five hundred dollars in emergency savings. And then the third thing is take advantage of your employee benefits. Um, and I was like, hey, like I'm, I've been thinking about this thing, kind of employee benefits. And he's like, oh no, like that's it's kind of crazy. Did a bunch of research. We're like, wow, there is a profound amount of money in the space you're talking 24 billion dollars a year in 401k matches 300 billion dollars in employee benefits yearly that essentially go unutilized um, and then we just you know kind of just got to work i'm thinking about all right how can we scalably build a solution uh, that can enable a lot of these people to get access to it um, but yeah i mean so to that you know kind of first question of like all right, i think about it Really, I think all of my experiences kind of informed it. When I was at Goldman and JP Morgan, we were doing all of these kind of financial services for super wealthy, um, super elite folks, where it's like, hey, we're helping get them access to debt. I'm an advisory services. And I think the biggest thing I saw is there's a lot of companies now that do Vobo advisors. There's a lot of companies that will essentially give you access to this advice and mentorship, um, but none of them do the liquidity. Like when you think about what we were enabling for companies or billionaires, when I was at Goldman and JP Morgan, part of it was giving them advice as to how to best invest their money. But the bigger part was the financial vehicles. They're like, hey, we can structure a $2 billion debt facility so you can do this takeover acquisition so that you can actually think about your retirement savings, yada, yada. Um, And in my mind, I was like, I always felt like when I was a goldman, we're making these like micro optimizations on people's portfolio. Like this billionaire has access to any number of investment opportunities. If we increase their kind of returns by 1%, great, we're going to make them a lot of money. But like 1%, that's a small improvement. My parents, they may have a lot less money, but I see opportunities for how I can make them like hundreds of percents a year. Um, and that's what a 401k match is. It is quite literally a guaranteed 100% return on investment. But the reason that no one's actually building any of the infrastructure for people to get access to these things is purely because if you make a 1% return on Jeff Bezos' thing, great, you know that's a billion dollars. If you do it with my parents, it's not a whole lot, so it's not worth the manual labor, but if you can scalably build the infrastructure to serve that 99.99% of people, great. You now have a significantly larger swath of wealth than any of those billionaires have access to.
0: What are some of the reasons why people don't take advantage of it if they know they have a match?
1: Yeah, largely liquidity. I mean, take you know the average American worker. You make 40K a year. You're supporting a family of three to four. Um, taking, if you're, let's say, working at Walmart and you have access to a $3,000 match, um, do you really wanna take a $3,000 hit to your liquidity? Um, that's the biggest thing. People just do not have the liquidity fundamentally to contribute. The average American does not have $500 in their bank account for emergency savings. They're relying on payday loans, they're relying on um, you know on credit card debt. And I think uh, you know, when starting this company, a lot of the people we talked with, um, all VCs. And a lot of those VCs come from rich, white, you know, kind of backgrounds with all relatively homogenous. And that was a question we got all the time too, of like, why would anyone not use their match? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, these people must just be uneducated. And I think the biggest thing we're trying to dispel with our company is that these people are making a rational financial choice. I'll point to my parents as an example. It sounds dumb for them not to have used their 401k match when they had access to it and not to have gotten $2,000 a year. But I think the way you need to reframe it, is my mom decided to make a conscious choice to pay the rent and feed her kids in lieu of getting her 401k match. That is a rational decision that you'd say almost any American should make, obviously. Like you should pay your rent, feed your kids, like do do those fundamental kind of life things you need before you actually start saving and investing for retirement. Um, And I think that's kind of like the broader generational problem, is that if you look at like 401k and retirement savings over the past 20 years, for the top 10%, it's done nothing, but go up and appreciate with the market, which makes sense. You, know, you put $100,000 in your 401k, 10 years from now, it's worth $300,000. That's what appreciation is. For the bottom 50% of Americans, 401k savings have gone flat or decreased. And that's during the greatest bull run ever. Or not, not ever, per se, but during a phenomenal bull run. Um, so like they're not even like actually appreciating with the market. They're straight up staying flat. And that's purely a, a function of liquidity.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. I'm, you know, I've seen all the statistics around how few people actually are able to save any kind of retirement savings whatsoever. And I remember there was another really interesting study I saw at some point around 401k where it was um typically you have to opt in. So it's not like all of a sudden money is taken out of your paycheck to contribute, but uh they did a study with some subset of people where it was auto opt in, you had to opt out. And it was really interesting to how many more people kind of figured out how to make it work when you had to opt out. And it seems like you're giving people the ability to have that almost like auto opt-in as opposed to having to, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, so so like liquidity is a big aspect. Uh, You know, there's actually a bunch of great books that we have to send it to that kind of talk about like the profound difference that just like that opt-in model makes. Um, And I think, you know, like the second issue outside of liquidity is also just like complexity. Um, It's really fucking hard to understand 401ks are the simplest, but, employee stock purchase plans, you get a 15% discount on 15% of your salary, but there's also a look back. HSA matches, I think are one of the craziest things in the world that people don't utilize. And we're talking even like super sophisticated VCs and investors. Um, I'm actually curious, do you know what an HSA is by any chance?
0: Yes, I do. But maybe health savings account. You want to explain it to the listeners? Yeah. Do, do you use it? We don't have access to it, but um, okay. in the past, okay. I had access to it and I did not use it. You did not use it, okay? Uh, let's see kind of
1: a great example. So, a health savings account. For those of you who kind of might not know, um, so uh, I'll backtrack slightly. A four hundred and one k. The reason you use a four hundred and one k is because it is called, it is what is called double tax advantaged. So, you do not pay income tax on the way in. You do not pay capital gains tax. That's the big one. So, when your money appreciates from hundred bucks to a thousand bucks, you don't pay that capital gains tax on it. You do pay tax on the way out. But the reason you use it versus just like a traditional brokerage like Robinhood is because great you don't need to pay that capital gains tax on that appreciation hsas are even crazier the what is called triple tax advantage you do not pay tax on it ever you just don't so if you put hundred dollars in your hsa it doesn't go through income tax it doesn't go through capital gains tax it straight up just grows tax free this is not a tax loophole this is something that is explicitly put together by the government that will continue to persist because the government wants you to use it. About 90 to 95% of assets sitting in an HSA are in cash. That makes makes no sense. That would be like having a 401k account in cash. Um, That's dumb because, well, the benefit of capital gains tax you don't even feel because your assets are sitting in cash. They can't appreciate Um, And that's just one of those great examples of like it is both a very difficult thing for most Americans to contribute to an HSA because they don't have the liquidity. But even when they do, these platforms were quite literally built 10, 20, 30 years ago. Like they are incredibly archaic, they're incredibly hard to use, and they're just complicated. Like understanding the tax implications of all of these things is not easy for the average person or even the sophisticated financial investor.
0: Doesn't an HSA, though, require a high deductible health plan? So what percentage of people are on those type of plans that could take advantage of an HSA?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's about a thing of like, there's some kind of benefits of actually switching over. There's also this kind of like very interesting hack where in theory with an HSA, you should never actually use it to contribute to your health expenses. You want to keep Mm. those receipts and then continue to grow your money tax free over time. But again, those are the things where it's like, like, I'm sure a lot of people's eyes right now are kind of glossing over. They're like, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of what we're building, what we're building to essentially automate that process of, hey, you don't need to understand the tax implications of an HSA in the same way that for me to do a Zoom call with you, I don't need to understand all of the very complicated technical infrastructure that makes it possible for us to video communicate. I just click a button and it's done.
0: Totally. There's so many loopholes when it comes to both the tax system and the financial system. And so figuring out how to let people just not have to know the nitty gritty and the details, but take advantage makes tons of sense. You know, um, the employee stock purchase is interesting too, because I think a lot more people have access to that. Explain that a little bit of how that works.
1: Yeah, so uh, let's take uh, like Tesla's employee stock purchase plan as an example. And I could be, I may be slightly messing up the numbers. So yeah, you know, feel free to not call me out too much. You might I'll fuck it up here. But the general idea behind an employee stock purchase plan is that you get to buy your company's stock at a discount. So I'll, I'll use some example numbers. Uh, let's say Tesla's ESPP um, lets you contribute 15% of your salary and you get to buy your company's stock at a 15% discount. The way that works, let's say you make $100,000 a year. You can contribute um, essentially $15,000 over the course of the year, but the typical um, kind of timeline of when this stuff vests is six months. So that'll be 7,500 bucks. Great, so you're putting $7,500 in and you can now buy your company stock at a 15% discount. The reason it's so good though, is that you can sell it the same day. So let's say Tesla shares are trading at 80, oh, sorry, 100 bucks. Great, you get $7,500 of the shares at $85 a share and you can sell it today for a hundred bucks, which means you're making that kind of guaranteed, it's not exactly 15%, it's actually a little higher because you do a hundred divided by 85, but that's 17%. So awesome, you just made effectively a thousand dollars. What's even crazier about that return is you're making these contributions from your paycheck monthly over a six month period, which means the average amount of time your capital is outstanding is only three months. So you just made a 17% return in three months, which annualized is a 90% guaranteed risk-free return. The biggest thing now is that Tesla, like a lot of other employee stock purchase plans, have what is called a look back. A look back means that you get to buy this company. um, You get this company stock at the cheapest price over the six month period. So let's just say the stock goes from a hundred bucks to a thousand bucks. You still get it at that hundred dollar share price and a fifteen percent discount to that, so you're getting seventy five hundred dollars worth of shares at eighty five bucks a share. But you can sell it today for a thousand bucks. So great, you just made a twelve x return in a three month period, which annualized is a like 50 x return. Um, and you know, the, I think the biggest question is like, well, like what happens if like the company's stock craters? Yep. It doesn't matter. Tesla's share price from the time you start to the time you end could go from 1000 bucks to a dollar. It's still at a dollar today, so you get a 15% discount on that dollar today, which is 85 cents. $7500 with the shares at 85 cents a share that you can sell it today for a dollar a share Gets you that same 17% guaranteed return. So, ESPI
0: how does that I'll work if it's pulling out of your paycheck? So I'm assuming if it's pulling money out of your paycheck over a six month period, it's purchasing that stock for you at that time.
1: Yeah. So typically, uh, there's what's in, uh, called an enrollment period and an offering date. Um, it actually and it can it can vary based on the SPP, but the grand majority of the time, it only purchases at the end. Got it. Got it. Got it.
0: So it's yeah, that so look it
1: like that period is up whatever that price is at that moment, like that's why it is quite literally risk free Like, you, you oh, can, I, I mean, you know, sometimes there can be um, like vesting schedules of like, you need to be at a certain amount of time at your employer to be able to use it. Or sometimes they say like, there's a lockup. So like, hey, you could only sell these shares in three months. When there's a lockup, there's even some interesting stuff you can do if theoretically you can just short the stock. Um, like if you're locked up on these shares for three months, okay, you just short it. And then you guarantee that, that, that kind of discount rate. <sighs>
0: Uh, that's funny. I'm sure the employer does not want you actually doing that.
1: Yes, that is fair. I think it is fair to assume that the employer does not want you to short the shares.
0: How about just taking advantage of the program? So whether it's a 401k match, um, an ESPP program, HSA, do employers want their employees to take advantage, or is that you know extra cash on the balance sheet they have to you know deploy?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, so I mean, the biggest thing—I'll uh, I'll use an example. McDonald's has one of the best 401k matches in the industry. And a lot of people, when they hear that, they're very surprised because they're like, it's McDonald's. Like, you'd expect Google or Facebook. Um, the reason for it, though, is that uh, 401k matches are the most important employee benefit outside of healthcare. care. Um, so if you were to ask someone if they'd rather get a $5,000 401k match or $5,000 bump to their salary, the average American, maybe not some of your listeners, if they're kind of working in, you know, VC and tech where they like equity packages and things like that. But the average person, 35, working at Walmart, wants that 401k match. Um, what that means, though, is that there's this thing called 401k non-discrimination testing. So if you're a company that offers a 401k plan, uh, there's actually a mandate. That you have a certain amount of participation in your 401k from people who make less than 120000 as to people who make more than 120000 a year. Nearly 100,000 companies fail that test every single year. And when you fail it, a bunch of fines, very onerous. And worst case, you just need to straight up give back the money to your highest paid employees. So that's going back to your executives and saying, you guys effectively do not have a 401k plan anymore, which is akin to going back to them and saying, hey guys, sorry, we fucked up. You don't have healthcare anymore. Um, So it's one of those things where these companies actually really, really actively push to get more participation in their plans selfishly, so that they can offer this 401k plan to the rest of their employees. And I think the way we're looking about um, kind of like the long-term vision of Lentable is that as an employer, you want to pay people as much as possible through benefits and as little as possible through cash. The reason being, when I pay someone cash, when I just give you $100,000, okay, there's payroll tax, there's state, t- state income tax, there's federal income tax, when I buy something... There's going to be sales tax. There's also capital gains tax when I invest in anything, um, and those are all taxes that are borne by the employer. And the, even though it's like feels like it's coming from the employee, at the end of the day, let's just say there was another employer that told you, "I'm only going to pay you 80k, but I've got this like really good agreement with the government. It's not going to get taxed. You're going to take the 80k no tax over the 100k all the tax every day of the fucking week, all the time." Um, through benefits, you have the ability to do that. If you now have a service where it's like, great, these people have liquidity. They actually can utilize these benefits. Great. Instead of offering someone a $40,000 salary bump, we're going to give someone a $40,000 401k bump. It's just strictly cheaper for us. We're going to do it through the ESPP because there are discounts on, you know, you uh, with a 401k, you don't pay payroll tax. That employee doesn't pay capital gains tax. With an HSA, they don't pay fucking tax at all. Um, You know, there's all these benefits where the main reason that there's such a lack of utilization is that there's just no liquidity on it at all. It's way too complex. It's way too um, antiquated. Um, And the last thing to note is it's not even a loophole. Like an HSA getting a triple tax advantage is not a government loophole. It is the opposite. The government wants you to use it. The government wants low income people to contribute to their retirement. That is why these services exist. The problem is people fundamentally, structurally do not have that liquidity.
0: Yeah, and that makes total sense. Um, and to your point, that is a good nuance of like, not a loophole. It's actually something people are, everyone is, it's win-win-win if people do contribute to those accounts. Uh, on the uh, ESPP side, how much, you know, what what type of participation do the average companies see in that program? So it broke up a little bit. Would you mind repeating? On the ESPP side, how many people actually do participate? Like what percentage of the average company will participate in that type of program?
1: 25%. So wow, the, very low. Yeah, yeah, so the about the, the average amount of people who don't use their 401k match is between a fourth to a half of all people who are offered it. And that was also during a bull period. Uh, we've seen our numbers jump very significantly since you've seen this large market downturn. Um, I would have to assume the same thing is true for ESBPs as well. But during the bull run, participation rates were only about 25%.
0: Wow, that's crazy. These are my favorite type of businesses. Say that. These are my favorite type of businesses. I call them found money businesses, where there is a pool of capital sitting there waiting to be used, but people aren't taking advantage for a variety of reasons. And if you can unlock how to give them the ability to do it, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, this has been super fun. Um, I'm really excited. You guys have raised a bunch of money from some great VCs. I think you guys are really scaling up the team. Anybody who is interested in learning more, definitely check out lendtable.com. But uh, Sheridan, my final question that I love to ask people is what are the words of advice or pieces of wisdom you've been given in your life that are words you live by?
1: Um, No one's thinking about you. Just do whatever the fuck you want to do. Like People think about you far less than you think people think about you. Um, The best time to do any of these things is when you're young. There's very little risk. Um, Fuck it. Have fun. This shit's super fucking cool and super enjoyable. Um, Laugh as much as you possibly can. Be as friendly and as just like willing to help people as you humanly can be and things will just end up happening, kind of working out positively for you. Work out, eat well. It's a a short-term micro-optimization to not take care of yourself and long-term will just end up making you less productive. um, If you just, like that's like a basic thing to just do.
0: That first one is one I need to continue to remind myself but I think those are all pretty great. (laughs) I don't even remember what I just said. I just blacked the fuck out for a second there. I was just ripping on some random my other stuff. <laughs> no, the, you were saying that uh, no one's thinking about you and just don't, you know, don't get yeah. caught up in what you think other people are thinking. And that one is so true. And it's like just yeah. Yeah. a waste of mental energy and time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm sick. Like people are definitely thinking about me,
0: but no one's thinking about anyone on this podcast, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Totally. Well, Sheridan, thank you so much. This has been really fun. And I wish you nothing but awesome success.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on.